Okay. All right. Let's uh, see. We've got uh, Psalm 119, 105. Here we go. None. Seed. Continue. Air. Sun. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Take an oath and confirm it that I will follow your righteous laws. Suffered much. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, O Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I continually, though I constantly take my life in my hand, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from the precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. Heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Good stuff. Okay, let's see. What else do we have here? We'll read this year or uh, this day in Christian history. Today is 14 June. Just because something appears to be supernatural doesn't mean it's from God. The year was 1108 and the place was Antioch. For centuries, pilgrims had journeyed freely from Western Europe to visit the Holy Land. The Muslims who controlled Jerusalem from the 7th century did not interfere with these pilgrimages. However, by 1071, the fierce Seljuk Turks not only captured Jerusalem from their fellow Muslims, but also defeated the Byzantine Empire. This led to the Turkish control of Asia Minor, modern Turkey. Rumors swirled through Europe of mistreatment of pilgrims by the Turks. In 1095, the Byzantine Emperor sent Pope Urban II an urgent appeal for military assistance. Urban's response was to organize the first crusade to regain the Holy Land from the infidels, offering the incentive of full forgiveness for past sins to those who joined the crusade. Urban was able to raise an army of 5,000 knights and infantry from France, Germany, and Italy. So they are, uh, they are uh, giving full, let me read that, full forgiveness for past sins if you join the crusade. That doesn't sound very biblical. On their way to Jerusalem, the crusaders were finally able to capture Antioch, but only after a bitter month siege. However, no sooner had the crusades taken crusaders taken possession from the city than a turkish relief force arrived and surrounded the city holding the very positions the crusaders had held a few days before the crusaders were now near starvation not wanting to kill their horses for food they drank the horse's blood to keep themselves alive a crusader relief force approached the city but when the commander saw the immense size of the army surrounding antioch he quit, quickly fled with his army rather than try to save the starving crusaders at this pivotal, pivotal moment, a crusader named Peter Bartholomew, known more for his frequenting of taverns than his skill as a soldier, announced that the Apostle Andrew had appeared to him in a vision and told him that the lance that had pierced Christ's side lay behind the altar of the Church of St. Peter in Antioch, and that if the crusaders would raise their lance against their foes, they would be victorious. The date was June 14th, 1098. The Crusaders immediately began to dig behind the altar as directed by Bartholomew. After others had dug for a whole day, Peter Bartholomew jumped into the excavation, asking the bystanders to pray that the lance would be found. Then he furtively slipped an old Arab spear he had concealed under his garment into the dirt and began digging himself. Clanging against the spear with his shovel, Bartholomew triumphantly pulled it out of the dirt. Holding it aloft, he said, See what heaven promised, the earth preserved. The apostle promised, and the prayers of a contrite people obtained. 
and awestruck chaplain kissed the lance. Hope and excitement filled the crusaders as they paraded through the city singing and praising God for giving them the lance. Peter Bartholomew was dressed in gold and fine clothes and presented with expensive gifts. Two weeks later, the crusaders, energized by the apostle Andrew's promise of victory and carrying their holy lance before them, confidently attacked the Turkish army and were victorious. Have you personally been aware of things that appeared to be supernatural, but you doubted were really from God? How can we prevent ourselves from being deceived? Just because something is supernatural does not mean it necessarily is from God. Never forget that Satan is the great deceiver. And then they cite Matthew 24, four false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great miraculous signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I have warned you. So there I you go. I wonder if Bartholomew um, was forgiven his sin after. Yeah, after the fact, forgiveness for lying to the people. Oh, my gosh. Now, where are you all from? Woodstock, Georgia. Woodstock, Georgia. What's your names? David and Kim Boggs. Oh, okay. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, so you're uh, visiting Sarasota for how long? Well, we're in St. Petersburg. Oh, for, uh, till till Saturday. You came all the way down from St. Pete just for the Bible class? Yeah. Well, welcome. I wish you had told me in advance we could have gone out or done something while you're here, and you're going to be here till Saturday? Yes, we are. Wow. Well, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, boy. Fantastic. Oh, yeah, we got some moon pies right here. I, I'm glad you said that. I got moon pies. Before you go, everybody needs to take one or two moon pies home with you, okay? They were shipped from the moon pie factory by some wonderful people. And uh, so we have some leftover from church on Sunday as well. So please grab moon pies on your way out. And uh, I got a couple prayer requests here. I got Sherry and Al Wiggins. Al is ready to pass. He's been declining a lot, and he is on his deathbed. But we are praying for him to make it to his 61st birthday this weekend, and the reason why his family will be coming. So they're praying. We would pray that uh, uh, Al would hold on long enough so the family could be with him. And just so I don't think I announced this during the uh, church service on Sunday. I may have, but somebody posted yesterday and asked how Alan was, the guy that we were praying for, my boss over at the uh, mall. He died. I, I did mention it. Okay, well, he must have missed that part of the service, but uh, Alan died, so his funeral's coming up in another week and a half. But uh, then I got one more prayer request who I mentioned before is Mary from Naples. Her grandson, Major, had some tumors on his neck, and they're still seeking to find out what is going on. He's gone to some specialists, and they have not been able to determine. They gave them a list of things that were wrong, but uh, they still don't know um, exactly what the deal is so we want to keep major in prayer as well but uh we'll go ahead and go to the lord in prayer first heavenly father we do thank you for the chance to uh come to you and to uh give you our appeals and we have somebody that i was talking to just about 15 minutes ago that was miraculously brought back from a state of almost death and so we know that these things are possible we know that your hand can heal if you decide to heal and so, Lord, we put these things in your capable hands, knowing that you can do far more than we could imagine or even dream of. But at the same time, you have a purpose for every life from the beginning to the very end. And you are sovereign over those things. So we petition you. We ask you for healing. But we would never presume to uh, demand anything. You are uh, our creator. And we just ask for these things that you will be glorified and that the uh, families will be built up through keeping Al alive for at least a couple days and for finding out what's wrong with Major. And for anybody else that's struggling with their trials and pains, 
right now that may be uh, uh, facing that as well. We do pray for them. And Lord, we thank you for this class, and we thank you that uh, you've given us the book of Romans, which is such a wonderful gift. We thank you for it, Lord. We love you, we praise you, and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, yes, I was going to do that as soon as uh, I did Article 10, but seeing as how you brought it up, I'll, I'll do it right now. Um, the uh, commission, the county commission met yesterday, and, uh, you know, we had a a real problem whether we were going to have a bar move in directly next door to us or not, which would have affected our Thursday, our ability to have any night service. And uh, the county commission unanimously voted to not allow bars or uh, bars within 800 feet of any church or school building. And that's stronger um, restrictions than the state of Florida in general. And it, it, we had said, you know, we have no problem with restaurants moving in because there aren't people that go to restaurants to get drunk and get belligerent normally it does happen but it's not the purpose of people doing that and uh, so you know we've got a restaurant right next door that's never been a problem and so they changed the law to allow businesses that sell less than 51 percent of their uh, uh, business alcohol beer and wine as long as they have more sales and food in other words but they can have beer and wine and so that is now countywide Thank you, Joe. Come on in. It was approved all the way around the county. And um, so that's the status of that. And I got to thank everybody that sent in letters and that was helping in as a part of that. It was very, very wonderful that uh, uh, that happened. And I just thank you so much. So um, uh, thank you, Joe, very much. All right. Thank you. And uh, let's see here. One more thing. Oh, yeah. Article 10. We're going to go ahead and read that which is from the Chicago Statement of Faith. Joe, have a wonderful evening. Thank you. All right now. And uh, this is Article 10. We affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of Scripture. I completely agree with that, 100%. Which in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that copies and translations of Scripture are the Word of God to the extent that they, are, they faithfully represent the original. In other words, a, if it does represent the original, then it is a faithful representation of the Word of God. If there's an error in it, and we go through when we do the sermons, you know, any time that I use the King James Version for preaching, anytime there's an error from the original, I always highlight that because I want people to know that. And then if there's an error in another Bible translation that I'm aware of, I'll say, you know, make a pen and ink change. The original Hebrew says this, or the Greek says this, or this is the tense of the Greek. Sometimes we need to know that as well. So um, wonderful thing that they affirm there. And a good point about that is um, I typed up a very long email, which I've now sent out, I think, five times. Somebody last week said, I've been hearing a lot about the book of Enoch lately. And um, uh I, 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 he says, it makes me wonder. He says, I don't think it's inspired, but how can I know? And he asked me that question. And so I typed a, a very long thing on the book of Enoch and come to find out that they have been using the book of Enoch to justify really crazy doctrine lately. It's almost become a fad. So um, I'll, I'll explain a little bit of that in a second. But um, one of the things that they are using Enoch for is to justify flat earth uh -oh. yeah, yeah teaching so uh it, it, one the book of enoch is not inspired it was never considered canon um the book of enoch is what is known as a pseudepigraphal writing which means a false writing okay there's all kinds of pseudepigraphal and ap um, uh, apocalyptic literature from the old testament times and the new testament times 
which were never considered canon by anybody, including the Book of Enoch. Now, the Book of Enoch, um, they had it. It was never a part of the uh, sacred writings that were maintained in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There were differences between the way they maintained documents. The ones that were canon were kept on special parchments. They were kept separately, um, and they know they know which ones were considered authoritative by the Jewish people. And that goes on with the Council of Yamina, which the Jews determined their canon. They determined the Old Testament canon, and we know what they decided. The only book of the Old Testament that we have that was not found as a part of the Old Testament was anybody? Esther. Esther, yes, the book of Esther. They didn't find any parchments from it, but it is considered canon. It was the last book of the Old Testament to be considered canon by the Jews, but it is canon and we know it is. I mean, just going through it for the past couple of weeks, you've seen that and you're gonna see that all the way through to the end. It points very clearly to Christ. Um, there are certain things that determine canonicity. Was it from a man of God, a prophet of God? Does it have the authority of the word of God? Does it have the power of the word of God? There are certain tests that you have. Those are all determined uh, in the books that we have. The book of Enoch never passed this. Now, people say, well, it's canon because it is referenced in the book of Jude. It's referenced in Jude 1.14. As a matter of fact, let me read it to you. Where's my Bible? Um, Jude 1.14 says, and it's, you know, this is important enough where we can take a little bit of a diversion to talk about this. Um, Jude 1.14, last book right before Revelation, and it's actually dash 14 because there's only one chapter, so you don't need to say chapter 1, but... Uh, Jude-14 says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands, uh, ten thousand of his saints. Okay, so they say, see, that's it canon because he's citing in the New Testament. Okay, anybody know what the problem with that is? Is he using it to point to ridiculousness, or is he using it to point to something that's... No, he's actually using it to point to a truth, because it's repeated in Revelation chapter 19, when the Jesus comes back with thousands of his holy ones, meaning us. Any non-canonized book have truth in it. That's, a, that's one of the points right there. Paul cites three times uh, Greek philosophers. In Acts 17 he does, and he also does in Titus chapter 2, I think it is. So um, uh, he cites all Cretans are liars, right? Okay, he makes a point there. That's called the uh, Epi Epimenides paradox, because Epimenides was a Cretan, Cretan. right? So it, when he says all Cretans are liars, then he must be including himself. And so if that's true, then what he's saying is false. But if what he's saying is false, then it substantiates what he said. So it's a paradox, okay? Paul used that to bring out a point of logic. He also cites it in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 through 28. And guess what? He cites uh, Aratus and Epimenides, but he cites them speaking about Zeus, and he attributes it to the true God. He says, in him, we live and move and have our being. Well, that's from a poem, right? Um, but it's written originally about Zeus, but it's a truth. So Paul includes it, saying this is the true God that I'm speaking about. Okay, so not everything that's cited in the Bible is going to be cited from a canonical source. In the Old Testament, we have references to the book of J-A-S-H-E-R, Jasher, thank you. And so we have the book of Jasher. That's not in the Bible. Nobody considers it canon. As a matter of fact, the only book of Jasher we have was written by, I think, a Mormon in like the year 17 or 1800, you know, something like that. And so they, they said, well, we found the book of Jasher when it's not anything at all. It's just a fake writing, a modern writing. But we have other things that are cited in the Old Testament. Guess what? We have the books of the Chronicles of the king, uh, kings of Persia and Medea, right? 
I mean, we're going through the book of Esther right now. And um, so uh, uh, it's cited, but it's not canon. So we, we don't want to make error by listening to that fuzzy logic. Uh, well, I typed up an entire thing this long on why the book, I'll, I'll give you one more point before I go on. But if anybody wants that write-up to defend against this nonsense about the book of Enoch, email me and I will send it to you, okay? Just so that you have that for your records if you want it. But uh, another thing is that um, uh, what Jude was saying, behold, the Lord is coming with 10,000 of his holy ones. For all we know, it could have been a standard common statement that people said all the time because Enoch said it. And it could be that other people were saying the same thing. You know, the Lord is coming with 10,000 of his holy ones. So maybe Enoch just simply wrote what was common saying at the time, which Jude happened to say as well. Just like we say that Charlie is handsome and everybody writes it, so it's the truth that everybody knows. Okay, that was not true. But you see what I'm saying is that that we have, um, uh, just because something is cited and he says Enoch says it, doesn't mean that it came from the book of Enoch. And it is substantiated elsewhere in the Bible, Revelation chapter 19. And so we have no reason to assume that Enoch is canon. None. There is no reason at all. It is not canon. It was never considered canon. And it is very poor handling of scripture to use a book that is not canon to support something that you, flat, flat earth ideology, for example, or any of that other crazy stuff. We do not work that way in scripture. We have 66 books. It is inspired by God. We have patterns that run through it that very clearly show this. And so you want to stick to the Bible and you don't want to get into all these other fuzzy things. Um, so if you want that right up, email me. I'll send it to you. Wonderful stuff. And um, so that's what they affirm. I'll read it one more time. And the reason why I brought in Enoch is because it is something that they're speaking about right here. We affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of Scripture. When Jeremiah wrote the book of Jeremiah, when he wrote Lamentations, those were authoritative. They were inspired by God. They were the originals without any error as God wanted it. From that point on, there may have been error crept in by this scribe or that scribe. But if it represents the truth of the original, then it is also considered uh, inspired, as they say, which is in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. Now, what they mean is, and I've said this before, is that if you have 5,686 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, which is what we had when I was in school. I don't know how many they have now because they find them all the time. But they compare them and they will have one that misses a word here, one that adds in a line there. And they can take all of those manuscripts and they can put them side by side in a computer and they can show exactly what the original text looks like based on the errors. You take out the errors because this one says, um, I owe you $10, O-W-E-U $10. This one says, I X-E-U $10. And this one says, I owe you um, uh, T-O-N dollars. And eventually, you've gone through 5,000 manuscripts. You know that it's 10, not ton. You know that it's O, not Oxy or whatever. It's very easy to determine what the original is in Scripture by having that massive volume of original Greek texts, or not original Greek texts, but Greek manuscripts. Okay, The Old Testament is done differently. There are very few number but they are supported by other texts. You have the Greek copy of the Old Testament. You've got the Syrian uh, Samaritan Pentateuch. You've got the um, Latin Vulgate, which was translated directly out of the Hebrew. Um, you've got all these other uh, source texts that they have that they can compare 
And by doing that, we are very, very certain of what the original says to very high accuracy. That's what they're saying there. We further affirm that the copies and translations of scripture are the word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. New World Translation on the shelf back there, that's the Jehovah's Witnesses. In Colossians chapter 1, they add in words. At one time, that older translation, they bracketed those words. They no longer do that in the new translations. A bracketing is the same thing as the King James Version making it in italics. It's saying this is not in the original. However, we believe that that belongs there, even though there's no way in the world that word could ever belong there. It's not even inferred by the text. Okay, it's a very corrupt copy of or manuscript or uh, translation of the Bible. John 1, 1, they say in the beginning was the word and the word was a God. Okay, instead of in the word was God. All right. That can't be implied from the from the Greek at all. It would make no sense to say that. Okay, they've added words into there. It's a very poor copy. That's what they're talking about. That is not scriptural. The ones that reflect what the original says is scriptural, and then they deny. We deny that any essential element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs. As a matter of fact, it's probably helped, but they're saying the originals, the autographs. No doctrine of our faith is affected by not having those originals. And as I said, if they had the originals, there was about five or six major theological problems that could arise. One, somebody would have control over God's word. Um, two, uh, I, I'm not going to think of them right now. So, um, But there are several problems that will arise if they actually had those originals that would be harmful to what God has done. Okay, so no... Uh, element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of these autographs. We further deny that this absence renders the assertion of biblical inerrancy invalid or irrelevant. In other words, biblical inerrancy is still relevant even though we don't have the originals because this is what people will say. They say we don't have the originals and so the Bible isn't reliable. No, if we have 5,686 Greek manuscripts and they agree to a very high probability or a very high extent and the ones that do have differences can be weeded out based on this massive volume of Greek manuscripts and we know that we have an original so that's what's going on uh, God was very wise in the way that he preserved the 66 books of the Holy Bible very wise we have a sure word those areas that are in doubt as a matter of fact the King James Version their uh, original preface talks about this and they say that those things which are in doubt do not affect doctrine at all okay i'll pull that up sometime we can read it but so far that's article 10 very well done i love this chicago statement of faith and uh, uh these people really thought about what they were saying and how we are going to uh, uh display what we believe in writing so that people understand that we have a sure word okay so we're going to get into romans uh we're in 11:32, and while you're looking for romans 11:32, i will say we're going to close a couple minutes early today <clears throat> All of the chairs have to go into the back room, the uh, the kitchen, and into the bathrooms because we're going to have the carpet cleaned. It's been a couple years, and it looks pretty gross. So, and that was because of Burke's graciousness. He said, I'm going to do this for you. And I was like, I don't want you to do it for us. And he says, I'm going to do it for you. So thank you, Burke. And very nice. For somebody that doesn't attend the church, <clears throat> we very much appreciate it. So anyway. Um, you said you preach from the which Bible? The New King James Version. Okay, I thought a while ago you said the King James. No, no, no. Uh, New King James Version. When you're writing your scriptures yeah. or the uh, sermons, you will use that. Just mark with a 
Arizona. That's right. You can track them. That's right. That's so I, I use when I preach I and when I when I use for the sermons that I preach in the, the context of the sermons I write, it's always the New King James Version, unless I use another version, which I know is more accurate, and then I'll put that version in there. But if you see a citation in one of the sermons, it's always the New King James Version. And uh, But I love to pick on the King James Version because, you know, I, I, I was in a King James-only church. It is, it is, oh, it makes me so angry to have people get sucked into that type of theology. And so I always, uh, I don't pick on it, but I when there's an error, I... I have a page on my old website of the errors that are in the King James Version, and it's up to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Literally, I've got every book that I go through, I document what the errors are. And some of them aren't very major, but some of them are really, really problematic. Commandment and six. The what? Commandment yeah, six. Commandment 6. You know, thou shall not kill. Well, I'm sorry, it doesn't say that. Thou shall not murder, because the Lord told him to go kill a couple chapters before and a couple chapters after. That would be a problem. But... Uh, there's there are other I mean just direct translational problems with it, but we won't get into that today. Eleven thirty-two and go ahead. Yeah, why don't I sit on twenty-eight? Oh, twenty-eight's good. Okay. So, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of patriarchs. Okay. Once again, who is he speaking about? Israel. Israel. Remember that because concerning the gospel they are enemies for your sake if we are spiritual israel as reformed theology teaches then we're enemies of god that's what he would be saying if the church has replaced israel then we are enemies of god okay go ahead keep going okay for god's gifts and his call are irrevocable just as you who were at one time disobedient to god have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. You can see he's very clearly making a distinction between the two. And then verse 31, really important verse. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. So if we are spiritual Israel, that means we're in a state of disobedience to God right now. And why should anybody listen to us? Right? But that's what Reformed theology says. We have replaced them. And so when somebody says we are spiritual Israel, all you have to do is say, well, then you're disobedient to God and I'm not going to listen to you. Or schizophrenic. Or schizophrenic, yeah, because you've got two things going on. It's very clear that Paul is always, always making a distinction between Israel as a body and the church as a body, the Gentile-led church age. Now, when he speaks about the church, it includes Jews that are saved, but he's never equates Israel and the church as one entity, ever. Not one time in all of his writings does he do that. So, okay, go ahead, 32. For God has bound all men over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on them all. Wow, I typed up, what did I type up today? You talk about a mercy verse. Let me find this really quickly. It just reminds me of what I typed up this morning. And I, you know, I'm 10 ahead, so it's probably like Titus 3, 5. But let me read this to you because, oh, just what a great, it took me, it's almost three pages long. I tried to keep them one page, but I couldn't. It was just a wonderful verse. It'll be out in 10 days. And it was Titus, um, let's see here, 3, 4. Um, yeah, here it is. Listen to this, Titus 3, 5. Not by works of right, let me go back to four so you got the context. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and receiving of the Holy Spirit. 
I could have typed on for another four pages. I thought, I can't, though, because, you know, you got to limit your commentaries or they just get too long. There's a guy named McLaren that will just type pages and pages, and there's a point where you just can't read them anymore. And so I try to keep them to a page, but what a verse. I'm saying Titus 3-5 or 3 verse 5 is absolutely wonderful. I just... I, I put everything else off in the morning, and I skipped a lot of things I normally would do just to make sure that I had worded it, at least hopefully well, because it's a beautiful verse. But here we go. For God has committed them all, church, Israel, all people to disobedience who might have mercy on all. Again, Paul uses his common conjunction for. Like I said, anytime you're in the Bible and you're um, doing your study, if you highlight or circle or underline whatever the prepositions, that will help you out a great deal. Now, unfortunately, in the English, one preposition in the Greek may actually be able to be translated 15 different ways, for, now, then, you know, therefore, and so it may not reflect it exactly. And a lot of that, unfortunately, as I've said, comes down to translators not being able to use the same translation because pretty soon it becomes plagiarism. And they'll say, well, you copied our translation of this verse. So they got to think of innovative new ways to say the same thing. But uh, if uh, the, in the Greek, if you go through the prepositions, it is very helpful. And even in the English, underline or circle or highlight whatever your prepositions, and it will help you to think. And that's what Paul is doing here. He uses the word for in order to explain the previous two mercy verses with this concluding thought before he moves on to his stirring doxology, where my hair just stood up when I said that. For God has committed them all to disobedience. Okay, that refers to the previous disobedience of the Gentiles, who have now obtained mercy, and the currently disobedient Jews, who will obtain that same mercy. So here's a question. Have the Jews, are they right with the Lord right now as a nation? Absolutely not. I was so mad at Benjamin Netanyahu. I'll have it in this week's Prophecy Update. This is a guy I really love. I love Netanyahu. I, I am behind him 99%. But this week, I was so mad Oh, I got to tell you, it just makes me so angry, some of the things they do, you know, and we do the same thing in America. We have a good leader that makes some really stupid decisions for whatever reason. He, Netanyahu did it this week, and he is the representative of the people and what their mindset is. And oh, so there you go. Um, for has, God has committed them all to disobedience, once again, refers to the previous disobedience of the Gentiles and then the current disobedience of the Jews. They are still not right with the Lord. The church is not much better, I got to tell you, and we are declining very quickly. But the word for has committed in this verse is one which gives the thought of imprisonment. Can we help you? <laughs> That's my wife. Just picking on her. Um, the, the word has committed is one which gives the thought of imprisonment, okay? A comparable concept would be fish caught up in a net, okay? God has thus bound both categories of men, Jew and Gentile, so that he may have, as Paul says, mercy on them all. In essence, he imprisons so that he may set free. He binds so that he may release. He confines so that he may lead us to broad spaces. And that's found all the way through the Bible. I mean, David is in a pit. He's in a, a, a small place, and he says, but you have led me out to broad places. It's just, you know, the idea goes all the way through the Bible where the Lord has somebody bound. Joseph is bound, and yet he's freed, okay? He's using these examples of individuals to make bigger pictures later in the Bible, which Paul is now uh, using. 
All who come to Christ were first found to be in Adam. Every single human being ever born on this planet, with one exception, is under Adam. We all have a human father, every single one of us. If you're a girl, you have a mom and a dad. If you're a guy, you have a mom and a dad. That is universal, okay? Despite what people say about changing things nowadays, you have a mother and a father. That's how you came about. One person didn't, that was Jesus. He had no human father, no sin transmitted to Christ, okay? All who come to Christ were first found to be in Adam. All who are forgiven were first under sin. All who are adopted as sons were once orphans, okay? Now, where do we know that we were all born into sin? Where's the verse for that? Romans. Well, before Romans, because Romans doesn't say we were actually born into sin. It says all have sinned, but you could say, well, that's, you know, because people do. They'll take Romans and they'll say that's, remember I said that last week, either in an update or uh, it was in an update where people are saying that, well, the sin nature comes when you're older. It's not when you're born. Psalm 51. Thank you. I, I, surely I was born in iniquity. I was conceived in sin. I may have got that backwards, but anyway, Psalm 51, David very clearly says it. Okay. It is implied all the way through the Bible. David explicitly says it. Paul does too, but people will take Paul and they'll say, that doesn't say what it says, but you can't deny it when David says it the way he says it. He is absolutely correct. We are conceived in iniquity. We were born in sin. Okay. So we were in that state. We all who were adopted as sons means that we were once orphans, right? If you're adopted as a son, that means you're once an orphan. That's where we stand. Because of this, each will understand the freedom and privilege which they have been granted, hopefully, because people sometimes don't seem to understand that or they forget it, as we were talking about before the class. You can wander around your whole life forgetting that you were saved. And then you come to that realization, gee whiz, I've wasted all these years. But we once were orphans, and now we are adopted as sons. And because of this, each will understand the freedom and the privilege they have been granted. It is through contrast that we learn to discern the differences. If we didn't have contrast, we would never know good or bad. That is what helps us to understand. You sit in a hard chair, and then you sit in a soft chair, and you say, gee, I really like that. You've got a contrast now. If you were raised in a church where all they had was hard pews, that's all you know right? And then you go to a church that has soft chairs like this, and you say, well, that's not terrible. And then you go to another church that has soft chairs with armrests, and you say, this is really great, right? In contrast, I mean, that's what happened when we went to um, Gene's funeral over at the, they had the same chairs as these, but they had, they were a little more curved, and they had armrests. And I said, I didn't even know they made these, because if they did, I would have gotten, they were really comfortable. Anyway, um, so you learn by contrast, okay? And that is evident right from chapter 3 of Genesis and chapter 4 of Genesis. They had Eden, and they had no idea what they had. They had no idea until they lost it, all right? And then the naming of Cain and Abel shows us how desperately she wanted to go back to the garden. She now had the contrast. She now understood what she had lost, and all she could do was think about getting back there. I have acquired a son with the Lord. She's saying, I am participating in my salvation. This boy is going to get me back to Eden. That was her thought there when she named him Cain, Canaan, or acquired. Okay, she's, I have acquired a son with the Lord. He is going to be the promised redeemer that I was given back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And he, and then she realized after a while, he's not going to be the, the son to deliver me. And so what does she call her next son? Abel, or in Hebrew, Hevel, which is what Solomon uses when he starts out is talk about 
uh, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Hevel, hevelim, right? Everything is, hevel means breath. But more specifically, it would be breath that you can see on a cold day. It comes out of your mouth and you see it and then it fades away and you can't grab it. You can't do anything with it. And that's what she called him because she realized everything is vanity. I am never going back to the place that I had been. So contrast is something that we, we need. And it's something that unfortunately she learned a lesson from. But fortunately, we will be able to appreciate. Because when we go stand in glory, we will say, I never want to go back to where I was. But we wouldn't know that. We would be just like Eve if we just were born in in paradise. We would have no idea. So contrast is important. Being fallen before being saved is important. And, you know, the appreciation of your salvation will be reflected in the things you do. If you're really appreciative of your salvation, then you will be doing things that reflect that appreciation. And some people just treat it flippantly, like, oh, I'm saved and it doesn't matter. But some people really have an appreciation for it. And they do things with their life to show the Lord that they're appreciative of it. And I'm not talking about external things. Some people are very appreciative and all they do is talk to the Lord all day long. Well, let me tell you what, that is as good as anything I can think of because you're acknowledging that he's there. You're talking to him, you're showing faith, right? So everybody displays their appreciation in a different way. But the only way you ever would know that appreciation is by having the contrast of having been fallen first and apart from God first. So it's it's just a wonderful thing that God has given us, even though it's terrible in the process. In this thought of committing all to disobedience, Paul's words, it cannot be inferred that this was actively done by God. Rather, from Adam's free will choice, all came under sin and condemnation, and so all were bound under sin. Does anybody disagree with that? I, I am 100% proponent of free will. If you disagree with it, that's fine. I know there's half of Christianity does not believe you have free will, and that's fine. They will say that you have free will to sin, but you don't have free will to choose Jesus. Okay, and even that to me is a category mistake. But um, when I say a category mistake, they say that we're, we're dead in sin and therefore we cannot choose what is good. And the category is that we are live, sentient human beings. And because we are, we can see good and we can choose good. So it's a category mistake to say that we're in sin and we can't choose anything that's good. People do it all the time. They choose one movie over another. They choose one car over another. They choose soft chairs in church instead of hard benches. Those are choices that we make. Well, if we can see the ultimate example of good, which is Jesus Christ, then we go there. And so that is free will being exercised. So I, I, it's a category mistake that they make in Reformed theology. But that's okay. Um, the uh, free will, though, of the fall in Adam is something that's very hard to get away from. But the problem with that is, and I've said this before, I think it was in this class, is that if they acknowledge that there was free will involved in the fall, then they by nature must acknowledge that there is free will involved after the fall and that there is free will involved all the way through the process. And that's why R.C. Sproul was giving his talk one time on free will, and he said that um, when Adam fell, he intended to sin before he sinned. Because, and we know that intent is the same as sin, right? Right? When you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you have committed adultery with her already. So he intended to sin, and therefore, according to R.C. Sproul, he fell before he fell, which doesn't make any sense at all. 
He says he intended to sin, and then he sinned, and so he says, where does evil come from? Because God created Adam perfectly, and therefore I don't know where evil came from. Well, he can't acknowledge that evil came from Adam by choosing to reject God, because if he admits that, then that blows out all of the rest of his theology. So he just ignored the matter. It was free will. God gave them free will. He said, you can eat of any tree of the garden, but you, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so what does that imply right there? Free will, right? Because here is the, here is the tree. You can eat this and you can't eat that. You have the choice. So free will is involved in the choice right there. So there was no falling before he fell or any of that kind of nonsense. He chose to eat. He did it in innocence, but he did it against the command of God. And it is the command which shows us when, when the command was given, something came into life. Romans 5, I think. He when he gave the command, when the command was given, sin entered, oh, right, right? Okay, without a command, there's no imputation of sin. Correct. If I'm driving down the road and there's no speed limit posted, then I can't be imputed sin for going 100 because there's no speed limit. But as soon as they put up that crummy sign that says 55 miles an hour and I go over 55, now I can be given a fine, right? So uh, if there is no law, no sin can be imputed. And this is something, before we go on with this, I'll explain this again because it's very hard to understand. And when we struggle, when we do something wrong that we know we shouldn't have done after being saved, we think, have I lost my salvation? Okay, I, I, I get emails like this every single day, and I'm sure you get those questions in your own heart, okay? The answer is no. Why? Saved is saved. It sealed is saved. Is sealed. Sealed. Is That's true, but based on sin. I've done something to sin against God. Based on sin. That concept alone. Still have sinned, but the penalty, the, the cost of it has been transferred. One, it's been transferred. Transferred to Jesus, but two, go to 2 Corinthians 5.19. Somebody go there and read that to me. Instead of me going 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19, just read it out loud. This is the important thing. Yes, that's the one. Okay. Just 2 Corinthians 5.19. If you get there, just read it out loud. And that will show you why we cannot lose our salvation. You're correct. And 2 I, Corinthians 5. Verse 19. Go ahead. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. He has committed to us the word of, of reconciliation. reconciliation. Not imputing their trespasses to them. Or some versions say not counting men's sins against them. In other words, where there is no law, there is no sin. We are not under law, we are under grace. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. If there was a law, we would still be sinning, and the wages of sin is yeah. death, and that is spiritual death, not physical death. It's spiritual death, and therefore we would be cut off from God. But because God is not imputing sins to us because we are in Christ, then we cannot actually sin. We can offend God. We can do the things that are sinful. Okay, but we cannot lose our salvation because God is not imputing the sins to us. Everybody got that? Because when you get to the book of 1 John and he writes these very hard to understand things, unless you understand what he's talking about based on what he said first in Romans and then in Corinthians and then in Colossians, and then you get to um, what book was I just speaking? Oh, 1 John, thank you. Then you will say, oh, I understand what John is saying. 
He's saying that he who, let, let me see if I can find it really quickly. This is just to help people because this is such a difficult thing that we all struggle with. It's something that I know everybody struggles with. He says here, um, let me see if I can find this really quickly. Um, uh, he's talking about sin and uh, if anyone loves him, world um, stumbling. Hang on, it's probably chapter three, but let me see here. Is it whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. First, I'll go back to verse four, three, four. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifest to take away our sins and that, that in him, there is no sin. And then he says in verse, um, where was that six? Whoever abides in him does not sin. There's no sin in Christ. If you are in Christ, then you're not sinning because if you were sinning, then you would have your sins imputed to you, but you're not according to 2 Corinthians 5.19. No sin is imputed. Even though you've done wrong, you are in Christ, and therefore you are sinless in God's eyes, regardless of what you've done. Now, that does not give us license to sin. That does not give us license to do wrong. And yes, he does get into that. He says, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil is sin, blah, blah, blah. He gets into that. It's a very hard book to understand unless you understand that he is talking about those in Christ as opposed to those who are not in Christ. If you're in Christ, then you are without sin. Yes. So what do we call what what would you call that refer to it as sin? What do you what would you call that? Well, it's right? still sin, but it's not imputed sin. Okay? Because when Paul says, should I sin against my brother? Should I sin here? Should I sin, you know, and so it is still sin, but it is not imputed sin. And so that is the difference between a person in Christ and a person not in Christ. When we do wrong, it is not counted against us. But it is still wrong, and that comes out to Rewards, rewards thank you. Yeah. Rewards and losses at the beam of seat of Christ. Fellowship. Chapter one of that says, if we confess our sins, yes. then we're going to have fellowship one with God. That's right. There's no fellowship with, that's very good. We yeah. lose our fellowship when we sin against God. When we do things that we should not do, we know that we, and that's why people email and they say, do you think I've lost my salvation? Because they know that they've done something wrong. They don't have the sense of fellowship with the Lord anymore because they know they've done something to offend God. And so they have this dilemma in them. And the answer is no, you have not, but you have lost your fellowship. You've certainly lost your joy because you're typing an email because you're worried about what you've done. So all of these things come into play, but God is not counting men's sins against them when they're in Christ Jesus. Very important to understand. And we'll get back into the comments on Romans now because it's all tied together. And uh, let's see here. Um, in this thought of committing all to disobedience. Okay, yes, I said that. Um, from that, God had mercy on a select group of people and called them to himself. Their eventual rejection of Christ was voluntary. We know that. It's recorded in the Bible, but we'd know it anyway. At the same time, the Gentiles voluntarily streamed to the gospel. That's also recorded in the Bible, and we know in history as well that even now when Gentiles hear the word, they just they, they stream to it. I mean, they just gravitate towards the word. Thus, the committing of the Jews to disobedience was a self-inflicted imprisonment. Remember, I asked at the beginning of this, was it, uh, did God actively imprison them or did they imprison themselves? It was a self-inflicted imprisonment. Well, at the same time, the voluntary choice of the Gentile people brought us to God's mercy. Free will is involved. And once again, that goes, the imprisonment goes right along with fellowship that you just mentioned. When we do something wrong, we're, we're imprisoning ourselves. We're putting ourselves back in a box that we should not be in. We should be in fellowship with God. We should be walking in the Spirit. We should be living in the Spirit, not doing the things of the flesh that are wrong. 
But when we do those things, we are not going to lose our salvation because God is not counting men's sins against them. So there are different boxes, and as long as we can keep those straight in our head, that's a really, really important thing to do. Because if you're like me, you screw up every 15 minutes and you think, oh, you know, I'm sorry, God. I know that I'm not being counted that sin against me, but I still feel like I need to tell you I'm sorry because I've, I've, I've done something that has harmed our fellowship. And then you're back in fellowship again. Well, he said that in John. He says, now, I don't want you to do this, but if we do... We have an advocate. We have with the Father. Absolutely. The advocate, which is not the same as a mediator. A mediator works between two parties. This is what I have. This is my disagreement between the two. And now this guy gets in between them and he mediates. And he comes to a, an agreement between the two. An advocate says... Let me get this here really quickly. We'll just make a quick little diversion. This is a mediator. We've got one party here and we've got one party here, or we could put them side by side. But if, if we're talking about God and man, then we'd want to have God on top. But we'll say we've just got two people side by side and they have a disagreement. And so this guy comes in between them and he says, what is your stand? What is your stand? Okay. And then he takes that information and he draws up a document and he says, okay, this is how we are going to work this out. I am mediating between the two. Got that? If it's God and man, then God is on top, but Jesus is in the middle. One way or another, it's the same premise. But an advocate is this. Here is a person that has something, a law, we'll say. We'll say it's Sarasota County government. And then here is me standing here under Sarasota County government saying, but, 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 and this guy walks up and he says, I will be your advocate. I know the laws of Sarasota County. I know the statutes. I know all five commissioners too, and I, I go out to dinner with them on Friday night. And so I'm going to be your advocate for these people in this way. I'm going to speak on your behalf to these people and based on my knowledge of the law, based on my knowledge of these things. So there's a difference between the two. This is a mediator. This is an advocate. He stands with you. And that is what verse he just said, that Christ is our advocate before the Father. And what that means is that I have offended God and he says, I'm sorry, you can't touch him because I've already taken the penalty for him. That doesn't mean he actually goes up to God the Father and says these things. It's a picture of what he does, just as he's a picture of his mediation. He's already taken care of these things before the foundation of the world. But this is so we understand what Christ's role is for us. I advocate on their behalf. I am there to defend them from the things that they've done wrong, which should offend you, I've already taken that, and here's how I've handled it. That's an advocate. So, um, uh, voluntary choice of the Gentile people. When an offense is committed, the judge is right in sentencing the criminal. That's what he does, right? The jailer is right in executing his duties of imprisoning the offender. And the executioner is not guilty when he flips the switch on old Sparky to put those who commit capital crimes to death. As we said, thou shall not murder, not kill, because the, the man that flips that switch is not guilty of committing murder. He is committing a capital punishment. He's executing that capital punishment on behalf of the duly uh, charged person. That's right. And so in Florida, the, the people listening online probably don't know what Old Sparky is, but that's the name of the chair up in our execution place up in uh, Tallahassee when somebody no. gets... Uh, Stewart. Well, Stewart, Florida. That's right. Rayford Prison. Is that what it is? Or it, Stewart. There's a name of it. It begins with an R, not Rayford. Um, anyway, um, okay. But Stewart, Florida. That's where Old Sparky is. And when they, I don't know, do they still use Old Sparky? 
They do. Okay, so when you uh, get executed here, they give you old Sparky, and they flick that switch, and you start dumbling around. And anyway, that's what that's talking about. Okay, so um, in the same manner as all of those things, God is not to blame when his instructions, which were plain and clear, are violated or ignored. God is not to blame. Okay. Moreover, he provides sufficient data for what he expects so that all who are so bound are without excuse when the evidence is presented. One cannot stand before God and use the claim that their sentence is unfair. Not knowing about Jesus doesn't condemn a person. Being a, being a human being who is born of Adam is what condemns a person. Everybody got that? We were talking about inherited sin. You're, as Jesus said in John 3, 18, those who don't know the Son are condemned, condemned already. Okay, there's another one. That's another explicit verse in the Bible that shows us that sin is inherited. John 3, 18. We all know John 3, 16. John 3, 18 is just as important. If you don't have the Son, you are condemned already. So, not... This is an important thing because people always bring in that question when you're witnessing to them. Well, what about the guy in Africa that never heard about Jesus? Not knowing about Jesus does not condemn a person. Being born of Adam is what condemns a person. It's already a done deal. What they need is Jesus to get them out of that pit. And that's why he's speaking about mercy. Every person on this planet needs mercy because we're condemned already. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And so we deserve to be separated from God for eternity. God gives us his mercy and he says, I'm not going to give you that. Great stuff from a wonderful God. Being presented with Jesus and rejecting Jesus only increases the condemnation. And being presented with Jesus and accepting him frees Adam's seed from condemnation. Therefore, all are bound under disobedience that God might, not will, he might have mercy on all. God does not have mercy on all. He might have mercy on all, and that is based on our free will choice of saying, I want Jesus in my life. I want to accept him. Because if he did have mercy on all, then it would be universalism, universal, yes, ism, and we would have no need to go to church at all because God forgives everybody, and so why even go and learn the Bible, right? No, absolutely not. You must choose to receive God's mercy. Life application. A common question, and what is often used as an indictment against God's, I know where I'm going to go with this. I gave the example, I know what this is going to say. Uh, fairness involves those who have never heard the news about Jesus. See, I typed these, and then I forget that I typed them. How can God condemn such a person? Be ready to answer this. Man is already condemned according to John 3.18. We need nothing to be separated from God. That already is the case. In his mercy, God sent Jesus. The choice is ours to accept or reject the offer. Ensure they know to choose wisely. Okay, I got to witness. Did anybody? You saw it. I know you did, and I know you saw it. But um, this week, I'm gonna. I've actually, I'm so excited about what happened this week that I'm gonna include it at the beginning of the prophecy update. Is this week the night blooming jasmine, or I'm sorry, the night blooming cirrus bloomed? It was. Did you you saw that where? Oh, they're amazing. Okay. I, I use them as a chance to witness to somebody because behind them all that I take care of, there's all this junk that used to be back there. It was all pepper trees and I cut it all out and I made a little park back there. It took me a whole summer to do and there's all these palm trees there. 
and the palm trees were all just scrubby because they couldn't get any light. So they finally started to grow up and I took some of my night blooming cirrus and I put it on all the palm trees behind them all. And there's full sunlight and they need full sunlight for, for them to develop. So I've been maybe five or six or eight years, I don't know how long ago I planted them and they've climbed up all of the trees and this week was the week. I mean, a couple will come out here and there. You'll get, you know, some that'll pop out. But there's one night where they come out. And they came out on, let's see, today is um, Thursday. They must have come out. Hedica, what day did we go down there? Uh, you were working that Oh, so it was Tuesday. It was Tuesday because she was working that day. And I, I dragged her down there. She just got up and she's like this. And I dragged her down there. I said, you got to see this. I know what's going to happen this morning. They open as the sun starts going down. The night blooming cirrus, they start out as a little cotton ball, like this big. And they get a little bigger and a little bigger. And then finally they start looking almost like a hand coming out. And they start, it's just, they start coming out a little bit. And then finally they stand out like this. And they're about this long. They stand out on the night they're going to bloom. And there were probably 400 of them on all the trees down there. And I took her down there and they were open. I posted them on Facebook. And I'm going to tell you what, they, 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 the blooms are this big and they smell just like white chocolate. And they, it was so beautiful. And what happens is as soon as the sun starts coming out, they close and they die. And that's it. They don't, they only bloom that one night and that is it. Well, I told a girl, there's a vegan shop, you know, and vegan means they're usually a little lefty and a little crazy. Well, anyway, I, I, I told her, I said, these things are going to bloom. Do you know what they are? She said, I have no idea. And I said, you want to be here. She came that night at 10, 1030 that night to see these. And she and the guy that she was with, she said they stood there for hours looking at them. They're so amazing. So it gave me a chance the next day to open to Romans chapter one and tell her about God and uh, uh, Psalm 19 and the glory of uh, the heavens reveal the glory of God and the earth show forth his handiwork. And so anyway, I was able to use that as an example to her about the Lord and about his wisdom. But the point is that God's wisdom is displayed in these things and it is marvelous. And every year I take one and I break it off and I put it in a cup and I keep it in the refrigerator. But I took a picture of it on top of the stove, and the stove is about this big, right? About that big. It covered almost the whole stove. It's 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 giant. Anyway, beautiful things. And uh, but what I'm saying is the point that I brought that in for this class instead of uh, the uh, prophecy update is that if you have a chance to witness to somebody over something as simple as flowers that open at night, use it. Okay, that's the point. Okay, because as I said, in His mercy, God sent Jesus. The choice is ours to accept or reject the offer. So ensure they know to choose wisely. And that's what made me think of hers because I said, now it's your choice, choose wisely. And I was, every time I say that, I think of um, Indiana Jones and the, uh, he's shaking his head, Temple, um, of Temple of Doom, which by the way, I'm watching right now. I just, I started, it'll take us about five nights to get through it, but I started watching it yesterday. And at the very end, you've got all those, those cups. He walks in to uh, grab the cup of Christ and he says, Choose wisely. <laughs> Anytime I say that, I think of that movie, Choose Wisely. And then, of course, he didn't choose. He chose holy. <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, here we go. 1133. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Oh, my gosh. And we're not going to get to 34 today. We are. I, it's, it's, it, there's no way. I, I don't think so, but we'll try uh, 1133, let me read it one more time for um, 
Uh, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Very close to yours. Okay. For the second time in this epistle, Paul enters into an open expression of worship of God. What was the first time? What was the first time? He just, just jumped in and started praising God right in the middle of what he was saying. I'm thinking chapter 7. I, that's what I'm thinking. Let me go back here. Um, um, yeah, oh, wretched man that I am. I think that's the one that he... Well, I'm seven. What's that? Seven. Yeah, that's why I said. Chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who is delivered me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. That must be what I was thinking of when I typed this. Um, yeah, for the second time in this epistle, Paul enters into an open expression of worship of God. In chapters 1 through 8, he gave instruction on doctrinal matters and finished with a praise concerning the relationship. So I'm thinking of 7, and I said 8 here. So let me see, what is it? Chapter 8. Uh, um, uh, yeah, who shall separate us from? That's okay. But actually, he, this is actually the third time. I should change this commentary because that really is, chapter 7 is definitely a, thank you. Uh, that is definitely a... Uh, uh, a, a time that he did that. Let me change that to third, and I'll change that in my notes someday. Okay, there we go. Third time. All right. So um, uh, he uh, enters into an open expression of worship of God. Chapter 1 through 8, he gave the instruction on doctrinal matters and finished that with a praise concerning the relationship which had been established between God and man because of the work of Christ. In chapters 9 through 11, Paul has conducted a lesson into dispensational matters, the church age and the relationship between Jews and Gentiles during that age, showing that God is in complete control of what is happening and what will come about. He finishes this section with his mercy verses. Okay, does everybody here, does anybody here not understand what dispensational means? Dispensations are the seven dispensations of time that God has used to break down the categories of time. We've got the first is innocence, Garden of Eden, and then you have conscience, which is from the Garden of Eden until uh, the flood of Noah. And then after the flood of Noah, you've got the dispensation of government, okay? And that goes all the way through to this day in the, the governments of the world. We're still under individual governments all through the world, but during that time, he pulled out a man and he gave him the dispensation of no, begins with P and ends with Ramas. <laughs> promise, that's right, Abraham, he gave him a promise, okay? That is the dispensation of promise, and then that led to law, okay? But law cannot outdo or undo the promise that was made to God through Abraham, okay? So it's a teaching dispensation, the dispensation of the law, which, by the way, is still in effect for the Jewish people. We'll see that in the book of Esther, but we see it in the world today because Daniel 9 says that until they come to Christ, they're still under law, and they have uh, seven more years to get that right, which is coming soon to a tribulation period near you. But then we have, after the law, Christ fulfilled the law in his blood, and he initiated a new dispensation, that of grace. Thank you. And then from grace, we lead into one final dispensation. You've got the tribulation period, which takes care of law. The governments of the world are still going their own way. They're doing their own thing, but the church is separate from those governments, it's its own entity within the world. And at the end of the tribulation period, we enter the final uh, the final um, uh, dispensation, which is millennium. kingdom or millennium. Yes, it's the thousand-year reign of Christ. So those are your seven dispensations, okay? 
And so this is what Paul has been relaying is why things have been happening in this dispensation as opposed to with the Jews who are still under law. They haven't come to Christ. Okay. He finished this section that he's been speaking about these things with the mercy verses. Now, with a resounding note of praise, adoration, and awe, he breaks into a doxology, which shows finite man's inability to comprehend the magnificence and greatness of God. He begins with an interjection, which is the Greek letter omega. What is omega? Yeah, maybe the end. Okay, but what is it? Omega is an... It's a letter, but what letter? First. Oh! Oh, the wisdom and knowledge of God, okay? It's just he uses an omega. Oh, we do the same thing in English. I was just seeing if one of you guys would clue into that. You'll never forget that now, though, will you? I guarantee it. The translation directly goes to oh with an exclamation point. It is as if he looked at the previous discussion and was unable to grasp what just flowed from his pen. He's doing this under the inspiration of the Spirit. Now, this guy is a Pharisee. He knew all of these things. He couldn't have written them if he didn't understand what he was writing in a, a basic sense. But the Spirit was inspiring him to take those things from his store of knowledge and to write them out. And probably in his somehow, however the Spirit does it, was working with him to correct any faults in his theology. I don't know how inspiration actually works. But Paul, after stopping and reading what he had just written, was that floored, where he goes, big omega, oh, okay, the uh, immensity of understanding the grafting in of the Gentiles, the rejection of the Jews, and yet the return of the Jews to their high position at some point in the future, all of this suddenly dawning on him. Oh, the depth of the riches, he says. He speaks of the riches of God being poured out upon undeserving man. God's treasure trove of godliness is unlimited and it is eternal. There is no end to the blessings which can come from him. And there is, for those who are the objects of his favor, no end to the blessings that will come from him. And that means no end forever and forever and forever and for eternity. We will be stunned at the blessings which flow from God. God is pleased to bestow these riches upon his creatures so that they may in turn glorify him. Westminster Short Catechism, first, first point is... What is the chief end of man? Enjoy God and glorify him forever and ever. Thank you. You got it. You, just, you got it. That's, that is. And you know what? The Westminster Catechism of Faith is simply a catechism. It's, it's, you know, it's not something that we should hold as scriptural or doctrinal other than the fact that it has truths contained in it. Once you start using a catechism or a book of discipline or anything like that, as your marching orders, that can be, I say it every week in the Prophecy Update, it can be amended or annulled or anything else, right? The Word of God cannot. So this has to be our source. But the Westminster Short Catechism is correct. The chief aim of man is to enjoy God and to, uh, what's that? Jesus says that in the Revelation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Say it again. He says that in the end, at the end of Revelation, it basically... You know, you're, you'll be back in the garden and you'll be worshiping and serving God forever and ever and ever to worship and to serve. Absolutely. So, um, okay, um, let's see here. Um, where was I? Uh, oh, the depth of the riches. He speaks of the riches of God being poured out on undeserving man. I said that. And uh, God is pleased to bestow these riches upon these creatures so that they may in turn glorify him. Because God is eternal, 
The stream of these riches will proceed ceaselessly and endlessly to those who are his called, chosen, and elect. Paul then turns to both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. That's the next thing he writes about. There's a debate on the reading here. Two options are, okay, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, or oh, the depth of the riches and of the wisdom and knowledge of God. There's a little bit of a difference there, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God or and of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It is either depth describing riches and then riches describing the wisdom and the knowledge or each is an individual tenant, okay? People dispute or they argue over this, all right? And so this is when we talked about um, uh, texts and minor variations, a scribe will say one thing and so these texts will follow that and then this one will say that. But is there a loss of doctrine in that change? Absolutely not. There's no doctrinal loss. And that's one of the points of the um, statement of faith in Chicago. Okay. Potatoes with a fork or a spoon. That's right. That's exactly right. Okay. So um, the difference isn't small, and one should contemplate both options because both fill the mind with a different type of wonder at what Paul is saying. The wisdom of God and the knowledge of God are introduced separately because they reflect different characteristics which are too often incorrectly mixed together in our thoughts. Wisdom is the proper application of the will in order to meet a good end. Everybody got that? That is wisdom. It's you're applying your will to meet a good end. In the context of Romans 9, 9 through 11, it is speaking of that use of God's will which will bring about the mercy on all people, okay? This was seen in the preceding verses. The plan of redemption is so wise that it is beyond our ability to fully grasp. We can read the words, we can understand their meaning, but never come to fully understand how God has or will continue to exercise his will while at the same time allowing man free will that he has given him. Okay, that's it's just it's something we can't really grasp. The knowledge of God is different than wisdom. Knowledge of God is certainly speaking on several levels. His intelligence, which is infinite. His foreknowledge, which is timeless. Because he knows all things, both immediately and intuitively, God is able to anticipate every possibility that could occur in every part of his creation. Every single possibility, okay? God is, uh, there is nothing which could surprise him and nothing which could break down in what he has constructed. It's as if he's constructed something which is infinitely knowledgeable. It will never break down, and he is in complete control of all of it, even though he has said, man, you have free will to do these things. All right? From the minutest atom to the grandest galaxy, all things are working harmoniously because of the intellect which created and sustained these things. That is knowledge. Wisdom is an application of that knowledge. It's a little different, but it's basically that. Because of the depth of these tenets of God, the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge, Paul's pen issues uh, ink into words which are insufficient to relate the concept he is trying to convey, which is in turn insufficient to relate what that thought is trying to grasp. How unsearchable are his judgment, Paul says. Here we use a term, he uses a term found nowhere else in scripture to describe God's judgments. The word means to search out or to investigate but it begins with a negative. The word is on, on I can't even pronounce it, on, exer, on, 
aoneta, okay? The a at the beginning. Anytime you have an a at the beginning of the word in the Greek or in the English, it's a negative particle, okay? Like abnormal. You've got normal and then you've got abnormal, okay? The a makes it a negative, okay? Which makes me think of young Frankenstein. Um, abnormal. abnormal brain. Thank you. There you go. Abby, Abby, somebody or another. Uh, Abby, who? Abby, normal. There you go. Okay, that was Marty Feldman. Very good. A uh, little bit, you know, it, the difference is if you ever watched it on TV, they didn't have all the bad words in it. If you watch it on the, the video, you got some bad words in there. So, same thing with Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I could never watch it again after I saw it on video. I, I had to turn it off after a couple minutes. It was so bad. But on TV, it was the best movie I think I ever saw. So it's just terrible how they have to add that junk in there, but whatever. Anyway, um, okay, so you've got this, this word with the negative at the beginning. The word means to search out or to investigate, but it begins with a negative. His judgments cannot be searched out. They are beyond the ability of man to even locate. What he has determined can be studied, it can be contemplated, it can be charted, it can be graphed, it can be argued over, it can be communicated, and yet none of this is or could be sufficient or fully uh, possible to explain them. In the end, there will always be questions which, even if answered, will only lead to more questions. The finite mind will never fully search out what has been determined in the execution of his infinite plan. And then Paul goes on, and his ways past finding out. That brings in another term, which brings begins with a negative as well. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. It is used only one other time in Scripture. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, uses it concerning the work of God in Christ in Ephesians 3, verse 8, where he says, Corinthians, Ephesians 3, verse 8, he says, To me who am less than the least of the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The word is similar to the preceding one. It means to trace out or to track. We can search high and low, near and far, and never fully understand the ways of God. Isaiah speaks of this wisdom when quoting the Lord back in Isaiah 55, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's one of my 1100 and 89 favorite chapters in the Bible. Um, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In the end, redeemed man will eternally be in the presence of God, beholding his splendor and marveling at what he has done. We, just like the night-blooming cirrus, I mean, that alone is enough to just blow my mind that it would happen the way it does. And the beauty, you know, the Lord spoke about uh, the, the glory of Solomon in all of his glory. And yet he was not like one of the lilies of the field, which is here today and cast into the fire tomorrow. The wisdom of God. You've got this beautiful giant flower that comes out at night for whatever purpose. And the thing is, they're so ugly the rest of the year. They're just like snakes climbing up a tree. Everybody pulls them down and throws them away, having no idea of what they will show them for a short, brief moment, you know? And it's like Christ. You've you got all these, these thorns all over these things, and even on the stem of the flower itself, but you've got this beautiful flower in the middle of all the thorns. It's like Christ being in the middle of all of us. It's amazing. What a beautiful flower. Anyway, um, let's see. Your eternity itself will reveal that we will need eternity to pursue this glorious creator. Life application, we're going to finish early because we got to get these chairs moved. What will we do in heaven? What? Uh, 
you said wisdom, you know, the proverb says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yep. The fear or the awe, he's, he's saying, oh, oh, oh and that's I what Paul is doing. what I understand and see yep. spiritually. Absolutely. He, you know, it was just mind boggling to him. Mind boggling. He, here he read what he had written and it was mind boggling to him. And we're reading it. And, you know, 2,000 years later, we're still studying this. People, and we still get excited about it. It's not like it ever gets old. It never passes away. It's just wonderful. And, you know, I, I'll be done with the book of Romans and we'll go into something else and we'll get back to Romans in 15 years or so. And I'll be, oh, what a book. I, I'm so glad we're doing this. It, it never gets old. What will we do in heaven? How can we live forever without getting bored? Don't worry about that. The infinite glory of God will be ceaselessly revealed to us. There will be no end to the discovery of his majesty. Eternity itself will be needed to search out the depths of our eternal God. Wonderful stuff. Okay, that's a good place to stop for the day. We only got two verses done, but that's okay. It's pretty they wonderful. found another galaxy. Did you see that? What's that? Another galaxy that they found. Is that right? Like all the others, just grand. Yeah, but you think that we're just a teeny little speck <laughs> on the corner of one galaxy, and we got this giant galaxy, and we haven't searched out the Earth, and we've got billions of galaxies, and now they found another one. Just imagine the wonder that's out there. And like I said, I doubt if there's any sentient being on any other planet, but there could be all kinds of life on the other planets all throughout the universe, waiting for us to discover. Stuff we can't even imagine. Who knows? Heavenly Father, what a wonderful God you are. Thank you for the flowers that bloom at night and the smells that adorn our foods. All different smells and you go to a different country and there's something you never imagined there. You are so good to us. You give us such variety. And the variety is what gives us the chance to understand. The contrast helps us to uh, realize the, the good that we will have someday. Because as good as it is here, it's a fallen world full of thorns and thistles and, and heartbreaks and angry people. And Lord, it'll be so good to be with you where those things are behind us and we'll rejoice in your presence forever. Lord, we thank you for the glory that you've displayed to us and we anticipate the wonders which lie ahead with eager anticipation. We love you, we praise you, and we exalt you. And we do so in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, let me back this baby up here. So what's the mission here? Uh, we just got to get all of the uh, chairs. In. Oh, wait a minute. Let's say goodbye to the folks online here. Break. Sorry about that. I